I invite you to turn uh, either to the first page of the handout where you will find 1 Samuel chapter 1 printed uh, or indeed turn to that passage in your Bible. I'm very grateful to Andrew for the uh, invitation to share with you uh, this morning in the beginning of uh, what I hope you will find to be a very interesting, uh, rewarding and important study of this book we call One Samuel. Um, I have to just correct one thing. Uh, the top of my CV is not being Andrew's father-in-law, but being the grandfather of his children. That's much more important. <laughs> Now, as we approach this book of 1 Samuel, I want to suggest that our expectation should be high. I wonder whether that's too much to hope. I don't think so. You see, we find ourselves living in deeply troubled times. I haven't met anyone recently who thinks otherwise. Now, you may disagree with me and I may disagree with you. We may disagree with one another as to just what the trouble is but that these are troubled times is indisputable. The Bible tells the story, the true story, that makes sense of this troubled world and indeed of our lives as they are impacted in various ways by those troubles. And as we turn to the book of 1 Samuel, as we step into the history of Israel, as it's recorded in the Old Testament, it's helpful for us to understand that it is recorded in the Bible for this reason. The history of Israel is not there simply to be interesting to people who are interested in ancient history. It's there as part of the story, a big part of the story, that makes sense of our world and of our lives. Because what went wrong in the nation of Israel is what has gone wrong in our world. Now obviously, uh, as we travel back to 1050 BC, that's where we are in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, 1050 BC, of course it was a different world from Australia in 2022. But what I, I, I hope we will see, and I'm sure you will see as you work through the book, at a deeper level, the Bible helps us to see that the troubles in Israel then, and there were plenty of troubles, resonate with the troubles of our world. If only we'll take the trouble to see it. Furthermore, the questions raised by Israel's troubles then are the questions raised by our troubles. And the surprising answers to such questions for Israel then turn out to anticipate very, very important answers for our world. Now, to try and set the scene for 1 Samuel, I want to flip back for a moment just to the very last verse of the book of Judges. Uh, you've got to go back past Ruth to get to Judges. Ruth is a kind of uh, very important footnote to the story. But the, the, the immediate background to our story in 1 Samuel is the book of Judges. And it concludes with this striking sentence, the very last sentence of Judges, uh, Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes or as he saw fit. 
It was a time, in other words, of political instability. Stable political leadership had not yet been established in Israel. There was no king in Israel, is the way in which it's put. Everyone did their own thing. What was right in their eyes. And they were not happy days. If you have a look at the last few chapters of the book of Judges, you'll see that's an understatement. They were not happy days. Israel was a deeply troubled society. And two questions would have bothered any thoughtful person living in Israel in those troubled days. Question one, what kind of leadership did they need? That's the question that will run, in fact, like a thread through the pages of 1 Samuel. Would having a king help? That's what the nations around about them had that had developed in recent times but had not developed in Israel, a hereditary monarchy. And perhaps you can imagine, in a society like Israel, you can imagine how there would have been arguments for and against. And we'll hear some of those arguments as 1 Samuel unfolds. The second question as Israel in 1050 BC was overwhelmed by chaos and corruption, fear and confusion, division and conflict, we'll see some of that as, the, as we move through the book, it would have been reasonable to ask a second question, this one. Does God care? This nation, after all, was God's people and things were a mess. Does God care? Now, I wonder whether you agree with me that those are two questions that any thoughtful person living in our world today may well ask. What kind of leadership do we need to sort out the divisions and the conflicts in our troubled world? Many are describing the present time as a time of crisis in leadership, Crisis of confidence in leadership. And you can see it, can't you? And the second question, does God care? Now that's a big question. Is there a God who cares about the troubles of our world? And of course the troubles of our lives. Now the first of those questions about leadership will occupy the whole story of 1 Samuel. The second question is very much the concern of 1 Samuel chapter 1, to which we now turn. And uh, come with me and let's follow this um, rather wonderful little story. We begin in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Samuel, where we read that there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zulf, an Ephraimite. Well, that tells you a lot, doesn't it? A certain man. And if all those names seem obscure to you, that's not because you don't know enough, it's because they're obscure. Um, an obscure man from an obscure place with an otherwise unknown father and grandfather and great-father and great-great-grandfather. It's a little odd, you see, in these troubled times. To begin this book like this, that our attention is drawn to this nobody, Elkanah, from the hill country. Let's read on, verse 2. 
He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Elkanah's first wife, Hannah, suffered the all-too-common sadness of being unable to have children. So Elkanah took a second wife, Penina, who bore a number of children. We're not sure how many, but quite a lot. Now that arrangement, which puzzles us, and we're not going to dwell on it for the moment, but just to, just to comment that it, it was an arrangement that was not actually forbidden in Old Testament times, which is a little surprising to us, I think, although, as we will see in a moment, it was never ideal. It never worked out well. Well, Hannah's circumstances, just think, think about Hannah for a moment, because this morning it really is Hannah's story. Hannah's circumstances must have also raised the question, don't you think? Does God care? Just as whenever we find ourselves in troubling, sad circumstances, it's a natural question to ask, does God care? That's the thing about living in a troubled world. The big questions are also personal questions. So in these days, does God care about Israel's troubles? And does God care about Hannah's sadness? Well, now, Hannah's story unfolds in four scenes. Um, there are varying lengths, and so don't get too troubled if one, if, if one or two of them go on for a little bit too long. Scene one, which I've just called year after year, begins in verse three. Scene one. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Shiloh was about 25k uh, north of Elkanah's town. Uh, there there was an annual feast, uh, a feast for thanksgiving and worship. And I'm wondering whether there were plenty of people in Israel who stayed away from Shiloh in those days. After all, Israel was in a bit of a mess. What was there to celebrate? Why would you give thanks why would you worship? If there were many who thought like that in Israel, that was not Elkanah. He went up year after year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty. Elkanah, you see, was a man of faith in God in these troubled days. Furthermore, verse 4, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. So here is Elkanah, watching closely, caring properly for his second wife and their children. Verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Um, this verse is actually a little bit difficult to translate, and if you compare translations, you'll see that the translators have struggled a little bit. But let's just focus on our translation, which suggests that he gave Hannah a double portion to show that he still loved her. And he understood that her childlessness was something that had come to them from God's hands. 
Elkanah, in other words, I would have suggest you was a thoughtful, caring husband. He didn't understand why his wife was suffering this sadness, but he did know that their circumstances were given to them by the God he worshipped. And of course he was right. His behaviour towards his childless wife was deeply affected by this faith. He didn't resent her. He didn't blame her. He loved her. Just in passing, I think it's worth noticing that faith in God is a wonderful antidote to resentment. See, all things that come our way, and indeed things that do not come our way, are ultimately in God's hands. And it's wonderful to know that. He is sovereign over all that happens in his world and all that happens in our lives. And knowing that is very, very good for us, as it was for Elkanah. But there were tensions in this little family. Verse 6. Because the load the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Shiloh, her rival provoked her until she wept and could not eat. It's a distressing scene, isn't it? That word rival hints at the problem of the two-wife situation, but again, I'm not going to go into that. But Penina, you notice, took the truth that had produced rather admirable conduct in Elkanah and used it for something nasty. You can kind of imagine her words, can't you? What have you got to thank the Lord for, Hannah? It's a bit of a joke, don't you think? You coming here year after year to give thanks to the Lord when the one thing you long for, he won't give you. The Lord has closed your womb, Hannah. Isn't it obvious that he does not care for you? Verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, people interpret his words there differently, but it seems to me that he treated her gently and tenderly. He was powerless to change their circumstances, but he really did love her. Well, that's scene one. Scene two takes us to one particular day at Shiloh. So verse 9, it's seen to one day at Shiloh, and we're at verse 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. Eli the priest was, in effect, the leader of Israel at this particular time. Uh, we'll hear more about him in coming weeks. But watch Hannah. As she comes to the tabernacle, 
where Eli was seated. Verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. A deeply unhappy woman. But through her tears, she prayed to the Lord. Now, friends, there's a special logic here behind Hannah's behaviour. We might call it the logic of faith. Because, you see, faith in God means knowing and trusting God's sovereignty and his goodness towards us. God is sovereign and he is good. No matter what happens, that's true. And faith in God therefore leads us in our troubles to pray to the God who is sovereign over everything and is good. And that's what Hannah did. Verse 11, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. She made her request to God. She asked God for what she deeply, deeply desired. And if you think about it, what was it that she deeply, deeply desired? Essentially, she desired God's attention. See her words there? If only you will look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant. She wasn't suggesting, of course, that God had lapses of memory. But here, here again we have faith's logic. Uh, some other logic might, want, might lead you to want to escape from God. If God is ultimately responsible for my sad circumstances, I want nothing to do with him. That's something you hear a lot these days. I don't want to have anything to do with a God who would. But faith understands that there's nowhere else to go. God alone, God alone is both sovereign and good. Her prayer was really that God would so look on her misery and so remember her that he would now do for her what he had not previously done and give her a child. And she made a vow. If God were to grant her request, then the child would be given to the one who had given him to her. In a particular Old Testament way that we won't go into now, if you want to do some homework, you could read, I think it's Numbers chapter 16, about this uh, razor not touching him or something like that. It was a particular Old Testament way of someone being given specifically and exclusively to God. Verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, remember Eli's sitting there, he observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you go, are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Seems to me if Israel had a leader who couldn't tell the difference between a godly woman and her heartfelt praying and drunken rambling, then no wonder Israel had a leadership crisis. 
But more on that in a few weeks' time. We'll hear more about Eli uh, as the chapters unfold. But Hannah put Eli straight in verse 15. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And at last Eli spoke, as I think he should have spoken at the first. In verse 17, Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. What do you think happened? The first consequence of Hannah's prayer, and this is so often the case, isn't it, was to change Hannah. Look at verse 18. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. No more weeping. No more refusing to eat. No longer sad. We could say, couldn't we, that she cast her anxiety on the Lord knowing that he cared for her. And that alone changed things for her. But there was more to come. We come to scene three. Back home at Ramah. Verse 19, uh, early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah, as they had done year after year after year. But on this occasion, I've got no doubt that Hannah's worship that morning had a different tone. And this year, her journey back home was in a different spirit from earlier, the earlier journey from Ramah to Shiloh. But what happened then? Verse 19 again, Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Uh, in the Hebrew language, Samuel sounds a little bit like asked for. Now, we're going to hear much more about this boy in coming weeks, Samuel. But for now, we've just got one final scene that takes us forward a year and then further um, uh, and back to Shiloh. Uh, the next year, is in, this is scene four at Shiloh again, um, verse 21. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfil his vow, this is the, the next time he did it, the next year, Hannah did not go, verse 22. Uh, she said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, uh, I'll take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Well, Elkanah was fully supportive. Um, verse 23, uh, do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. May the Lord fulfil his promises. That was Elkanah's faith. Verse 23 again, so the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Uh, in those days, we understand that was probably two or three years. And in verse 24, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, 
and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And then this episode closes with the boy Samuel worshipping the Lord at Shiloh. The end of verse 28, and he worshipped the Lord there. Well, this is only the beginning. You've got a long way to go. I'm not quite sure how long you're going to take to get through 1 Samuel, Andrew, but um, I'm hoping it's quite a long time because it's a story that's worth taking in and taking in piece by piece. But this morning I just want to uh, draw things to a close by asking what are we to make of this first chapter? It seems to me perfectly clear that 1 Samuel begins by showing us that God cared for Hannah, a nobody from the hill country. As our story unfolds in the coming weeks, we will see that God's care for Hannah was also his care for Israel. This boy, Samuel, will turn out to be crucial to answering Israel's leadership crisis. But here's the thing. 1 Samuel chapter 1 points us to a most unexpected starting point for that answer. I mean, who would have looked twice at the miserable, sobbing Hannah for the answer to Israel's huge troubles? Hannah and her family, they were nobodies from nowhere. And in that, they were a bit like Mary and Joseph. Does God care? Really? Answer? Yes. He cared about his people Israel in their time of crisis and he gave Hannah a son. He cares about his world. And he gave Mary a son. The story of Hannah's child, in other words, has a sequel. The story of Mary's child. We will see in due course how Samuel may not have been the leader Israel wanted, but he was the, the leader Israel needed. Jesus may not be the leader our world wants, but he is the leader, the Lord, our world and each one of us needs. Does God care? Oh, he certainly does. He's given us Jesus. Let's pray together.
God and Heavenly Father, we thank you just for this news that you do care. And we pray, Heavenly Father, in our personal lives and as we look out on the troubled world in which we find ourselves, we pray that we would be people of this faith, knowing that the God who really is there really does care. We pray this in Jesus' name.